Okay. Let's see. Do we have any extras of those charts? If we do, I could use one. <laughs> there we go. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. Oh, well, in that case. Okay. See, he was being presumptuous. <clears throat> There's a verse in Proverbs that says, by presumption comes nothing but strife. So, uh, but we are, uh, today we are beginning chap- Genesis chapter 30. Okay? Which means that Last week, we were uh, at the end of chapter 29. And uh, we're going to try to cover uh, the first 24 verses of chapter 30. And I know that's a lot, but, uh, uh, but we should be able to cover that today, hopefully. Um, but before we do... Uh, once you look back there at the last part of chapter 29 and the parts of the passage that we looked at last week, uh, I think we began in verse 21 and look down there through the end of chapter 29 and tell me if you can if you can remember what did we talk about last week? Rachel made a mistake. Laban made a mistake. You could put it that way. <laughs> Would you care to elaborate? He wasn't care to elaborate. <laughs> oh, worked seven years for one woman and got another one. So it seems that um, we talked about the fact that Laban might have caused you to uh, get the older daughter married off before they came to the kids. Didn't work out that way, did it? No. So, uh, so he wants to get Leah married off first, but he's got Rachel contracted. So what does he do? And in spite of Tom's assertion, it was, it was a little more serious than a mistake. <laughs> And the bait and switch, didn't he? Okay, he. Uh, <clears throat> we talked about how he pulled that off, uh, but ultimately, when you come down to it, how did it happen? That's the way it's going to be. Yeah. How, how did he? How did he manage to pull it off? I mean, it's kind of a risky deal. I, you know, I, I don't think I'd try to pull off something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Jacob was probably a, a little bit uh, had a little bit too much wine at the what amounted to a bachelor's party. <laughs> so you can imagine what that was like. Remember we talked about how ultimately what it comes down to is the providence of God. You know, same thing with the, with the story of, of, of uh, uh, Jacob's deception of his father there a few chapters earlier where he deceived his father about Esau and, and uh, stole, the, uh, <clears throat> stole the blessing. And, and there again, it was a very kind of close, you know, closely planned operation. Could easily have gone awry. But... God allows it to happen because God has a higher purpose. He has a greater good. So, so God does not condone this evil. He, it's not, it's God, not God's will that evil things like this happen. But He does permit them to happen because He has some greater good, some far greater good that He wishes to accomplish. And so even when really bad things happen to people, or we might say when bad things happen to good people, uh, God still is in charge and He's in control and He has a higher good that He plans to achieve. And that, that can be, it ought to be encouraging to us and 
and helpful to us when we're struggling with unfortunate things that happen in our lives. What else that we talked about? I don't know. You would hope he did. <laughs> you would hope. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we don't know. It doesn't ever say that Jacob finally woke up and realized, gee, this is just what I've been doing to everybody else. But you would hope that over a period of time that, uh, that he would realize, you know, this sounds awful familiar. Sounds a little bit like what I've done. You know, it's amazing, though, isn't it, how blind we can be? Uh, when people treat us the way we've treated others, sometimes how hard it is for us to see that that's really what's going on. That's that we're getting kind of what we've dished out ourselves. But I, I hope he finally saw that. <laughs> uh, he does finally, I think, ultimately learn and grow and change. And I think that will become obvious as we go on through his story. But uh, but it certainly is a uh, it's a valid question. Yeah. What else? We talked about uh, the fact that he, after the older ones uh, was married, he immediately told Jacob, uh, you better work in another seven years, but we need to raise him now. Yeah. This is probably a good idea. Yeah, probably a good idea. I don't think Jacob would have gone for another seven year wait. Yeah. I'd, not given the track record here. So, and you know, and in in all fairness to Jacob, he does a lot of stuff wrong, but but at least we see that he honors his commitment here. That's one thing about him that I find honorable that that he doesn't just get Rachel and run for the hills. You know, uh, that's not as easy to do as it might sound like, as we'll see later when he does finally need to make a break, but. But it is, uh, you know, I think it's to his credit that he doesn't. I think another thing that's to his credit is that he, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't just dump Leah. He takes responsibility for her. And I, you know, I don't know what all the cultural issues are that are at stake there, but, uh, but he doesn't seek to divorce her. He doesn't seek to annul the marriage. I don't even know if that was an option then. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, many of us, if we found ourselves in that situation, I think we'd be sorely tempted to say, I have no obligation or responsibility to this woman. And we'd be tempted just to dump her. But he doesn't do that. He does take responsibility. He doesn't take as much responsibility as, he's, as he ought, as we see, because he doesn't love her the way a ha- husband is commanded to love his wife. Uh, but, uh, but at least he doesn't just dump her out in the wilderness somewhere or and and just abandon her, but he takes responsibility, even though it was really not not his, not directly his fault. He probably should have been a little more in control of his faculties. Maybe he should have taken a flashlight in a tent with him or something. I don't know, but but anyway. He talks about the fact that God was very aware she was unloved. Yes, yeah. God is very sensitive to that and to her to her condition, her relationship with Jacob, and and. Uh, you know, it's it's difficult when you read this story. There's a lot about this story that's hard to understand. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But <clears throat> but as I as I read the story, I have to ask myself the question: Was it really God's will and God's intention that Leah be his wife, <laughs> and that in spite of his uh, attraction to Rachel, uh, which in some degree seems to be attributed to her beauty, uh, was it? Was it really God's intention in the first place that he be married to, to Leah? And, of course, we see as we go through the story that she ends up bearing the, 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 the greater portion, significantly greater portion of the descendants of Jacob. And so uh, I know it's just a question that we wrestle with, and I don't know that there's, a, there's an answer to that. I think that would be done reference to Leah if he's saying about the legend. And if he did them for you... Eventually, well, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. It probably wouldn't have been easy to do if, uh, under the circumstances, because uh, he's he's working he's working for Laban's dad. So, <laughs> I mean, for uh, Leah's dad. So, yeah. And each time she had a child, she 
thought that it would draw her closer. Yeah. Why didn't it? Why didn't her having one child, one son, and then another son, and then another son, why didn't that ever solve the problem between her and Jacob? Okay. She was looking for the happiness that she thought it was going to create. Okay. It never did, did it? Yeah. Yeah. And that is that is an interesting thing. We talked about that last week about uh, there with the birth of Judah, the fourth son. Uh, that she says at this at this point she says this time I will praise the Lord. And as I mentioned, that could be understood two ways. It could be understood that she's. She's saying much like she did the first three times, you know, well, you know, maybe this time it's going to happen. But what's interesting is it is worded a little bit different because in each of the previous three, there's a specific mention made to her husband and the expectation that she has of what's going to happen in the relationship with her husband. But there's none of that in, in the when Judah's born, there's no mention of her husband at all. And so it does seem to me like maybe she's beginning to grow a little bit. Here, and she's beginning to realize that, you know, this that that I'm not going to be able to change my husband with all these children. Now, as we go on and we see that she has more children, we'll see that she kind of falls back into that way of thinking again. But but ultimately, one of the things that we pointed out last week is that we can't change other people. And and J, and, and the, the problem was that Leah was hoping that something she would do would change her husband. And probably most of you wives know by now <laughs> that there's not much you can do that'll change your husband, you know. It's really up to God and him and God if he's going to be changed. And and likewise, some of us, you know, guys may have been trying to change our wives and and hopefully we've learned by now that 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 just does not work, okay? People people need to be changed by the Lord. And they need to be changed in their relationship with the Lord. Jacob's problem was not that Leah was not having children or that she'd not had enough children. Jacob's problem was that he was being disobedient to God in not loving his wife. And there's nothing that Leah could do to change Jacob's heart. Only God could change Jacob's heart. And it was going to be a long, hard process even for God, as we'll see as the story goes on. Yes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, cause we talked about that last week, didn't we? That it's, not just what, it's not just what Laban did, but Leah was complicit in that. Leah was part of that whole scheme to deceive Jacob. And, and boy, that's not a, not a good way to start a marriage, is it? With your husband mad at you for, for, for pulling some shenanigan like that. So, yeah, I, I'm sure he had tremendous barriers to overcome. But we all marry sinners, don't we? All you women, you married a sinner. And all us guys, we married sinners. And we have to learn to deal with that. We have to learn to forgive and show love and compassion that, uh, even in spite of that. Were you going to say something, Mike? Yeah, I was wondering. You know, Leah seems to know a lot about Yahweh here. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of wondering where she got that. If her family was pagan, Jacob, <coughs> she apparently didn't hang, hang around Jacob any before this. Jacob, if he knows Yahweh, is not a real... And that is an interesting, yeah. Well, uh, at least she has some relationship with God. Yeah, Uh, as she recognizes this Yahweh, this covenant God. So, yeah, I don't know exactly how she uh, she learned all that. Uh, Clearly, we do know she grew up in a in an idol worshiping family. Uh, I do assume, and I don't know if I've made this clear before. I do assume that within uh, within Laban's household and Bethuel's household, that that Yahweh was acknowledged as a god, but just as one of many of the gods. So, uh, uh, so I, 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 you know, I, I encountered this when I was in the Orient, uh, in on Okinawa. It was very it was very common to have uh, Okinawa. I wasn't working. Among the Okinawans, I was a military guy just working in the military there, but I was familiar a little bit with what was going on uh, in the community. And 
and it was it wasn't uncommon for someone to become become a Christian, so to speak, uh, for a Ryukan to become a Christian, uh, and then just to put their little image of Christ or their little crucifixion and put it up on the shelf right next to all their other gods. And I kind of assumed that was what's going on here with uh, in Laban's household as well. Clearly, though, when she marries Jacob, she realized she's married into a family. I'm sure he made this clear that she is married into a family where we worship only one God, and that is Yahweh. But how clearly and thoroughly he explained Yahweh to her, I don't think he had a lot to explain at this point. Yeah. So that's a good question. How did she how did she develop this? And, I, and maybe part of the answer there, there is is what's really true about all of us is that ultimately we all get our understanding our, of our of God and our and what God is like from our own personal walk with him. And we can only get so much from what we hear from other people. So but that's a good observation. Right? Anything else? Uh, well, let's pick it up. Uh, actually. Um, Uh, let's see. Uh, let's pick it up with verse 31 of chapter 29, because it really all this all goes together. And as I mentioned last week, there are actually kind of three phases or three stages in which the birth of uh, Jacob's children are represented to us. And it begins actually in 31. So let's start in 2931 and we'll read down through our lesson in chapter 20, chapter 30. So it says, now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard, I am unloved. He has therefore given me his son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her and she said to Jacob, uh, excuse me, jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? She said, here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees and through her I may have children. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Now, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But he said to her, this, it, is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for surely I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my, husband, gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. 
Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. Okay. Um, Let me just ask this question. When we read this story, how does it affect you? We read all the way through this and you get to the end and you go, what? How does it make you feel? Or think? Isn't it odd? Partly it's odd because there's a lot of cultural stuff going on here that we're not familiar with. But even if you sort through all that, doesn't it just leave you confused? (laughs) You read through this and you go, what's happening? Why is all this stuff happening? What part of this is good and what part of this is bad? (laughs) You know, I mean, clearly what's happening here is God is building the nation of Israel. This is the foundation. (laughs) This chapter here is the foundation of the nation of Israel. This is where the 12 tribes start. And so clearly God's doing something here, but it's all mixed up with all this junk. You know, Jacob has two wives. He's a bigamist. Uh, He falls into concubinage. He ends up having... Uh, not only two wives, but two concubines. There's all this jealousy and animosity between the sisters and this rivalry and this struggle between the sisters. And there's the tension with their husband. There's all of this stuff going on. And then on the other hand, as Mike was pointing out, we see Leah and she's talking about the Lord and she's talking about what God is doing in her life. And you read this passage and you just go, God, this is so confusing. <laughs> you know, what, what's happening here? And I know that my responsibility as your teacher is to make that all clear, right? Well, good luck. <laughs> because it's confusing to me too. And, and I think one of the lessons of that is, folks, that's the nature of God's people when they walk in sin. When God's people live according to the world and operate according to the world and mix their faith in with God, their faith in God in with all their confidence and faith in the flesh, things just get really confusing. Have you ever noticed that about your life? You know, I mean, we love the Lord, right? We trust God. We believe His Word. We worship Him. We adore Him. We are... We're grateful for His salvation. We believe in the second coming of Christ. All of those things are true about us, right? But how oftentimes we resort to the arm of flesh. How oftentimes in our lives we just kind of set God over on the side and we say, I'm just going to fix this problem myself. And when we do, what do we get? We get... Pardon? We get trouble. We get Genesis chapter 30, right? And somehow, God, through all of that, providentially works to get us where He wants us or to accomplish what He wants in our lives, but it isn't without a great deal of pain. Welcome back, Ginger. We're glad to see you. (laughs) We were worried about you last week. (laughs) So, great. Okay. Well, so, so as we approach this chapter, it's okay if you feel a little frustrated by it. It's okay if you feel a little overwhelmed by this chapter because it really is a messy situation. Okay? Uh, now, I, I did, in order to help you kind of at least think through things a, a little bit and organize things a little bit in your mind, I did give you this little chart, okay? Uh, 
And, and you'll notice I have kind of the three phases, or if you want to think about four phases, that's okay. But there's kind of three phases of the birth of Jacob's children. And the first phase we covered last week when we talked about the birth of Leah's, of Leah's first four sons, okay? And that was uh, Reuben and Simeon, Levi and, uh, and Judah, okay? And those were her first four sons. Uh, and then you have kind of the second phase, which is this tug of war between Rachel and Leah with the, using their maids kind of as, the, as their proxies. So they use their maids. And, and two, Rachel's maid, Bilhah, was born Dan and Naphtali. And to Zilpah's maid was born Gad and Asher. Okay? And you'll notice that I have them in parentheses there beside each name. I have uh, a word there that kind of represents what their name is supposed to represent in the mind of their mother. Okay? So, so when Leah had Reuben... Uh, she named him Reuben because the name Reuben is kind of a pun on the Hebrew word for saw. She said, God saw uh, that I was uh, that I was unloved. And so he gave me this child. OK, so uh, I, I don't want you to misunderstand the, the word in parentheses. is not necessarily the strict definition of the word. In some cases, it is. In some cases, the, uh, the, the, the boy's mother is just using a, a Hebrew pun in order to associate uh, that son's name with that meaning or with that idea, okay? So, so that may help you a little bit just to see that each name is associated with kind of a meaning or, or a sense or, or a significance to their birth, okay? Uh, and uh, then after, uh, after the struggle with the maids, then you have the struggle over the mandrakes, and we'll talk about that here this morning, what that is all about, and why that's significant, but there's a struggle with this man with mandrakes, mandrakes, and and also with prayer. It's obvious that they are praying some. Uh, how much it doesn't tell us, but it does. When the children are born, on several occasions, it says the Lord heard them, or the Lord heard their voice. So clearly, these women were, in addition to everything else they were doing, they were praying. You know, it just sounds like our lives, doesn't it? Uh, oftentimes, we're praying on one side and trying to manipulate things on the other hand, you know, and, and that's what makes things all very confusing. But but so they did struggle through the mandates and prayer, mandates and prayer. And Leah then bears three more children, two sons. And it mentions a daughter and that daughter is Dinah. OK, now, actually, Jacob had more daughters than this. Dinah is the only one who's mentioned by name. And she's mentioned by name because she becomes significant in the story later. OK, so that's why she's mentioned. And then, of course, Finally, then Rachel has Joseph. Okay, so that by the time that Jacob Lee is is uh, ready to uh, leave uh, Haran and return to Canaan, he has twelve named children, including one daughter. So eleven sons and one daughter that are named. Okay, and then when he returns to Canaan, then uh, you'll see down in the corner there, Reuben is born in Canaan. Okay, and that's why he's kind of separated down in that separate little box. Okay. So, so that might kind of help you organize the names. There are actually four in each phase. There are four born to Leah. Then there are two born to each of the maids. And then there are four more children born after the, after the uh, competition with the maids. So that kind of organizes the chapter in your mind anyway. It doesn't explain why everything happens and how everything happens. But something else we should point out about, this, about these names is... Really, the theme or the point of the chapter is not the order of the birth of the sons. That's not what's important in the chapter. What's important in the chapter is the struggle between the women. Okay. So what's really important in the chapter is connecting the sons with their mothers. Okay. So, so the chart doesn't represent, and, and the chapter itself doesn't necessarily represent a strict chronological order of the birth of the sons. Okay. And one of the reasons that we that we understand it that way is because it seems pretty clear as we'll get into the uh, later part of this chapter that Joseph is born right at the end of the seven year contract for Rachel, which means that all 12 or at least 11 of these children were born in a seven year period of time for that to happen. There has to be some overlap. Okay. So, in other words, what I'm saying to you is that is that when when Rachel gave Bilhah to Jacob, one or two of these first four children may not yet have been born. Okay, she may have seen her 
her sister bearing children, and so her sister may have borne Reuben and Simeon, possibly Levi, and, and by this time Rachel's getting pretty desperate. And so then she comes and she offers her maid. So actually, these women may have been more than one pregnant at the same time, is what we're saying. So there must be, there may be, and there probably was, significant overlap, so that we end up having all of the children except for Dinah born within that seven year period of time. Okay? So. Things are happening pretty fast, okay, as far as we're concerned. If you're a, if from a husband's point of view, having 11 kids in seven years, that's, yeah, that's a lot of action real quick, okay. But uh, I just want you to understand that. So it's not like one is born, then the other, then the other, then the other, all the way down the whole list of 12. When it mentions Dinah, you'll notice it says afterwards Dinah was born. I think most commentators believe she was born sometime after that seven year period. But all the other 11 on there were likely born, we can't say dogmatically, but were likely born during that seven-year period that, that uh, Jacob was uh, laboring to pay off his debt to, for, for Rachel. Okay? So that's all uh, preliminary stuff. So as we open then chapter 30 and we begin chapter 30, we, uh, we find Rachel is seeing her, her sister uh, being very fruitful and having children, and so she becomes she becomes quite jealous of her, uh, and and out of this jealousy, then she goes to her husband and she says to Jacob, "says Give me children, lest I die." And he responds, uh, as we as we see there. Now, the thing one of the things that I think we need to stop and reflect on here is what's going on in the heart of Rachel at this point. Because Rachel is looking at Leah and Leah, who is unloved by her husband, is bearing children. Just one, obviously one right after another. Four children in a period of less than four years, apparently. Okay, So Leah is just really fruitful and she's bearing children and Rachel looks at that and she becomes jealous. Why is she jealous? She can't bear children. Okay. Now, as we go on down through the story and we get to the part about the mandrakes and Rachel asks Leah for some of her son's mandrakes, what does Leah say? (laughs) You took my husband away and now you want my mandrakes too, you know? So what is Leah struggling with? I mean, aside from the fact that she's unloved. <laughs> Pardon? Rachel has the control, but more importantly, Rachel has the love. Yeah. Yeah. You're just talking like a type A again there. <laughs> but but you, you notice the irony here? That Rachel wants what Leah has. And Leah wants what Rachel has. What does that sound like? They're sisters. <laughs> like sisters. <laughs> you got a glare from my daughter there. <laughs> Doesn't it sound like the grass is always greener? It's discontent, isn't it? It's interesting to me that that Paul in 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 First Timothy six he's talking about uh, he's talking about uh, 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 discontent and he's talking about false teachers and things and he's talking about why they teach the things they do and that sort of thing and it's and and that's the passage where where Paul says that godliness with with contentment is great gain you remember that verse okay but in that passage Paul seems to link this whole idea of contentment or discontentment with envy and strife and conflict. And what we see in the life of Rachel and Leah is because they are not content with the things that God has blessed them with, the product in their relationship and their family is all this tension and this conflict. Okay? And... And so one of the natural results of, of jealousy is, is conflict. Okay? But the question is, what is jealousy? 
excuse me while I tie my shoe, it's driving me crazy. <laughs> what what is what is jealousy? Okay. It's self centered. I'm focused on me. Okay. What else? Okay, you're, you're discontented with God, you're self-centered. What's your attitude towards others, towards the person you're jealous of? And don't say you're jealous. That's, that's using the word to define the word. I want us to think about this because we read these words and it's kind of easy to just kind of fly on by and not really stop and, and apply it in our life. And that's why I want to stop and think, what is resentment? Or, excuse me, what is jealousy? Okay, I want what they have. What else? We're not content with what we have. There's bitterness. There's a there's a resentment towards the other person because we perceive that they have the advantage. No matter what I have, no matter what God has blessed me with, I look at somebody else who has some perceived advantage. And I say perceived because that's how we see it. Okay. Jacob, I mean, excuse me, Rachel looks at Leah and she perceives that Leah has the advantage because she's having children. And she doesn't realize Leah's unloved. That's no big deal to her because she has love. So she doesn't realize what it's like to be unloved. So she looks at Leah and she resents Leah's advantage of being fertile. At the same time, Leah is looking at Rachel and she resents Rachel, even though she's having children just as fast as she can have them. She she resents Rachel for the advantage Rachel has, which is that Jacob loves her. Now, is it wrong to want to be loved? Is it wrong for a woman to want to have children if she's married? Even if she's not, for that matter. Is it wrong for a woman to want to have children? You see, there's, there's really nothing wrong with the desires these two women have. And, and here's, the, here's the tricky thing about learning to be content is we have to learn to be content even when the thing we lack is something that's okay for us to desire. That, that's what makes contentment really difficult, isn't it? I mean, it'd be a whole lot easier for me to draw the lines in my mind and think this whole thing through if, you know, if, if, uh, if, I, if what I was desiring or wanting was clearly not good or not holy, you know. If, if that's what I wanted, then it'd be very easy to go, well, that desire is wrong, okay? But the problem is, there are good things that I desire. And the, and the lack of those, or, the, or what I perceive to be the lack of those, can generate in my mind and in my heart discontentment. And, and so I was asking myself yesterday, I was saying, okay, how do I know... What is, the, what is the line between just having a legitimate desire for things that are good, like the love of my husband or, or children? What is the line between a healthy desire and, to have those things and discontentment? Well, it's when you start blaming God not being fair and you begin to resent the other person as the Yeah, I think that's I think that's it. It's it's when when we start and I'm going to do it backwards here, when we start resenting the other person, when we start having ill thoughts towards somebody else, when it begins to disrupt our relationship with somebody else when they have the things that we desire. That I think is a sign that we've become discontent. The other part, and we'll get into this more in just a, in just a minute, is, is back in the background behind all that is some kind of attitude towards God. You know, God could fix this if he would, but he hasn't. 
And sometimes we don't think it real consciously. And I'm going to show you that here in a minute. Sometimes we don't think it real consciously. But back there in the background, you know, we may be blaming this person or that person or whatever or our circumstances or whatever. But back in the background, God is back there and ultimately we're blaming Him. And that is when we have become discontent. And when we become discontent, the product in our lives is what we see in Genesis chapter 30. Conflict, struggle, warring, all kinds of bad thoughts. Yeah. All those things are the product of not being content. And that's one of the reasons why Paul says in 1 Timothy that godliness with contentment is a great gain. If we can, if we can learn to walk godly and to be content... That doesn't mean that we don't desire other things, but we are content with the things that God has given to us and that God has placed within our lives and we are content with those things. We may be praying for more, we may be hoping for more, but we are content with where He has us at the moment. That's a great gain in our life, Paul says. Right? So, excuse me, somebody said. Well, you may be coming to this, but I noticed it's not that they just blame each other. I mean, when people are jealous, they just start throwing the blame around. It's like Rachel's blame is Jacob because she couldn't have kids. Yeah, and that's right where I was going next. Yeah, yeah. So, so here you are, you're Jacob, Jacob standing there, you know, and you want kids, okay? And so this is the wife he loves, you know? So certainly he wants her to have babies, you know? I mean... And she comes up to him and she just broadsides him. <laughs> Give me children lest I die. Yeah. How do you think Jacob felt? Felt angry. <laughs> I tell you what, uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob has anger issues. He'd be telling God, hey, I didn't, what am I getting That's right. Yeah. He says, he says, Jeremiah is in the place of God. And then it's almost like he sticks the knife in and twists it in his anger. He says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? He's just, you know, he's just sticking the knife in. Now, admittedly, he's angry, okay? But as I look at this interaction between, between uh, Rachel and Jacob here, it stands in, and, and how they both handle this situation. It stands in such stark contrast to a very similar situation later in the Old Testament. What am I talking about? <laughs> the guy who married two wives. And one was fruit, fruitful, fertile, and the other way wasn't. Yes, Samuel's parents, Elkanah and Hannah. Okay, and and Elkanah's married to two wives, and it doesn't say he doesn't love the wife who's fertile, but it does make clear how much he loved Hannah. Okay, and but she was barren, and she couldn't have a child. And and how do they deal with the situation? What if, do you remember what Elkanah says to Hannah? It's typical guy stuff, but at least he's not angry like Jacob, okay? But it is a typical guy reaction. What does he say? I'm better to you than any son. Yeah. Isn't my love for you not better than, than 12 sons or whatever he says, or many sons or whatever? Isn't, my, you know, isn't that just how us guys would answer? <laughs> you know? Now, you've got to hand it to Elkan. I mean, he's, he's in over his head, you know. What are you saying here? No, that's a real man. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's in over his head, as those guys usually are with you ladies. We're usually in over our heads, okay? So, so we got to cut him a little slack. But you know what I sense there? I sense that he, he loves his wife. And he doesn't get angry when she comes to him and expresses her frustration and her hurt. He doesn't get angry with her. He, he doesn't understand it completely. He doesn't understand that yearning that God has put in her breast to have children. But... I mean, he, he knows it. He understands it intellectually, but he can't understand it emotionally. But he loves her. And he says, I, I, I just love you. Wouldn't that be enough? I go, well, of course, it's not enough, you know. But what does Hannah do with this yearning and this desire she has? She 
She goes to prayer. She goes to God and she prays. And so the contrast between Elkanah and Hannah on one hand and Jacob and Rachel on the other hand is pretty stark, isn't it? And, and, in, and in the example of Samuel's parents, I think we see a pattern of how Jacob and Rachel could have dealt with this situation. And we cannot help but wonder how this story would have turned out had they done so. I don't know, of course. God doesn't tell us. He might have had less sons. He might have had less sons, that's true. Uh, well, he might have had more. If she'd started praying sooner, and she does pray, as we see, she does pray, okay? But, but the emphasis in the chapter is clearly not on her prayer, but the emphasis in her chapter is on all the manipulation. So what does Rachel do? She demands a son from her husband. He retaliates in anger, sticks the knife in and twists it a little bit. Then what does she do? This is what her grandma did. Yeah. Follows the example of, uh, of Sarah. And she offers her maid. And, uh, and just by the biology of it, Jacob has a son. Okay. Now, it's interesting... We know God gave that son. We know that God creates life and makes life and, you know, and that this child who is born, who is Dan, uh, who is born, is, is made in the image of God and all that sort of stuff. But what's interesting in this, when, when the maids have children, when the maids have their sons, you notice it doesn't say really anything about God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she, well, Rachel at first, she, she kind of attributes it to God. She says, she says when Dan is born, she says, God has vindicated me. Okay. So I ask as I read that, well, how's God vindicated her? She's still barren. Now, I know culturally in their mind, it was like she had a child. But how did she have a child? She forced her maid against her will. To have relations with her husband so that her maid could then go through nine months of pregnancy and bear a child that she then has to give up to Rachel. Is that of God? I don't think so. But somehow God is going to work through all of this. God is, going to, God is in sovereign control and he's going to work through this and he's going to turn it all to good. This is the same thing we were talking about last week. Is that bad things happen the good people. But that doesn't mean that God, when bad things happen, that God is not able, and the fact that God is not turning it to some far greater good, which of course ultimately He will do. Well, so she has Dan, and then, and then she has another son. And what does she say about this second son? What does Rachel say about this second son that's born to, by Bilhah? Okay. I prevailed in what has she prevailed? She's still down four to two, so I'm <laughs> <laughs> That's kinda of what I'm thinking. You know? I mean I mean by Super Bowl mentality she's still she's still down four to two. <laughs> what did she prevail in? What does she call it? What kind of wrestlings? Mighty wrestlings. Do you know what that word mighty is there in the Hebrew? Elohim. It's the word Elohim. And most of our modern translations translate it mighty. If you remember back when we first started talking about the names of God, as we've gone through Genesis, we have encountered uh, uh, several names of God. But the primary two names of God we've encountered are Yahweh and Elohim, right? And, and we talked about how Yahweh... Is the, is the name for the covenant God of Israel. And Elohim is more often used kind of as a generic term for God and is even sometimes used to refer to idols. Okay? Uh, so it's just kind of a generic God word. Okay? But it, but it really has, in its real meaning is the, is the meaning mighty or great or powerful. Okay? Well, the significance though is that in the Old Testament, 
the Hebrew word Elohim, though it does have the meaning mighty, is never used in any context in which there's not some implication of divine involvement somehow. Okay, And most of the times when it's used, it's a reference to the one, one true God. Okay, That's how it's more often used than any other. Okay, But there's no place where it's used where the idea of God is completely absent. Okay, And so, in other words, it's like what Rachel is saying here is I have I have I have been involved in these God wrestlings with my sister. And I have prevailed. And this is what I was referring to earlier, is that she is she's in this titanic struggle with Leah for preeminence in her relationship with Jacob. She's in this titanic struggle and she's seeing Leah there. It's, you know, her focus is, you know, is totally Leah and Leah, Leah this and Leah that and Leah this and Leah that. But back behind it all is what? Is God. And even though she's struggling with Leah and her hostility is towards Leah, there's an element in which she's fighting God. She's wrestling with God. I'll never forget in my own personal experience, a little personal testimony here. There was a point in my life where I had some circumstances I was dealing with and they were just very difficult for me to deal with. Uh, and, and I uh, had more problem with my anger back then than I have now. <clears throat> and, uh, and so they, these circumstances just made me very angry. And I remember one day something happened and I just kind of blew up. I just got real angry and you know, threw some things around and stuff. You know, and got real angry. And then later in the day I stopped and I, or the next day or whatever, and I went, why did I do that? That was stupid the way I acted. Why did I do that? I mean, these are just circumstances. And then it just dawned on me. Like, you know, it's amazing how long you go in life before you finally learn some lessons. But it just dawned on me. I wasn't mad at my circumstances. Because my circumstances didn't create themselves. These circumstances were allowed by God. And I was mad at God. And my struggle was not with my circumstances. My struggle was with God. And so oftentimes, we're in these mighty strugglings in our lives, aren't we? And we're focused on people. It's this person, or it's that person, or it's this situation, or it's that situation. And we're blaming people. But back there in the background somewhere is God. And ultimately, what it comes down to is we're really mad at God. I was having a conversation with one of my daughters uh, here three or four years ago. A few years ago, I don't remember how long it was. And she, had, she was in, a, in, in an employment situation where she was struggling with her, her employer, uh, uh, the person who was over her in this situation. And it was, <clears throat> it was a very difficult thing because the guy was just incompetent. You know? And she was pretty upset that he was in this position and she was angry at him. And as we were driving somewhere together, and so I just said, so uh, you're really mad at God, aren't you? And she went, no, I'm mad at so-and-so. No, you're mad at God. Because God's got you in this situation, and you don't know how to deal with it. You don't know how to work through it. You've got a guy you don't think ought to be there in that situation. And God's the one who's allowed all this. (laughs) She sent me an email a little later. A few days later, and she says, yeah, Dad, you were right. <laughs> it was God. So oftentimes, we get so focused on the people that we think we're struggling with, we lose sight of the fact that this is a mighty struggling. This is a God struggle. This is a God wrestling. And when we finally settle issues with the Lord, then we are better equipped to deal with the people. doesn't mean the problems go away. But it means our perspective changes. And we can begin to act righteously in that situation. Well, so we have this tug of war. And then Leah, she comes and she brings her two maids. uh, And so there are four children born that way. And then fortuitously, her oldest son, Reuben, who is probably now about four or five years old, goes out in the field and he finds some mandrakes and he brings them home to Mama. And this becomes this big issue between the two of them. Okay, what's so important about the mandrakes? And everybody goes, I don't even know what a mandrake is. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a plant 
that grows in that part of the world and it has fertility uh, attributes attached to it, okay? Not really, but in the culture, they believe that this plant, you know, if you mix it up right, cook it right, whatever, ate it, I don't know, maybe ate it raw, whatever, could, uh, could, uh, could uh, create fertility in a woman and could serve as an aphrodisiac in the man, okay? So this is a pretty, you know, he comes stumbling in with his mandrakes. I don't think a four-year-old had any idea what he's bringing to mama. Uh, you know, I don't think any guy that was a, a guy that was a teenager would think to bring mandrakes to his mama <laughs> under the circumstances, okay? So he comes and he brings these mandrakes to his mama and Rachel wants them. Why does Rachel want them? She wants to be fruitful. She's going to do anything she can to try to have children. She is desperate to have children. And if nothing else works, well, let's try the mandrakes, folks. And that, uh, that explains then Leah's reaction. You know, when you just read mandrakes, you just think it's some plant he brought in out of the field. You go, so what's the deal? Why does Leah care? Well, Leah cares because it's a threat to her. She had the only influence she thinks she has over her husband is that she's having children and Rachel isn't. And now Rachel wants the mandrakes. And if these mandrakes work, that's a threat to my position with my husband, which isn't a very good position in the first place. Okay. So, yeah, he does spend a lot of time with her. Well, we're talking over several years here. So, yeah. So, so Rachel wants the mandrakes. Leah Resents Rachel asking why. Do you notice how she says that? Is it a small thing to me to you that you've taken my husband? What does that sound like? Does that remind you of something else? Remember back when, when uh, Rebecca and Jacob pulled that shyster on 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 Isaac and Esau. And, and then Esau was all hot and bothered. What did Rachel say? I mean, what did Rebecca say? He'll get over it. It's no big deal. She, she was totally insensitive to how deeply she had hurt her son, Esau. Now, we have a similar situation here. Only in this case, it's Rachel and Leah, and you see, Rachel is so focused on how desperately she wants children, she doesn't realize how hurt her sister is because she is unloved. Now, there's nothing that Leah could do about Rachel having children. But I think there's certainly something that Rachel could have done for Leah's unloved condition. And I think she had a responsibility to do it. I think she had the responsibility to tell her husband, Jacob, Jacob, this isn't right the way you're treating my sister. I want to be loved by you. I want your love. And I cut, what were you going to say, Mike? Oh, well, I know. I know, but she is. I know. I know. But this is seven years later, or four years later. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree that the situation shouldn't exist. But now that it exists, if Rachel had been righteous in this, would she not have encouraged her husband to love Leah also? I mean, it's her sister for crying out loud. So, at any rate, well, <laughs> I'm not going to get away with this. <laughs> What's weird about this is, first of all, it should be between one man and one woman, okay? I can't really get that. <laughs> I told you the chapter's confusing, right? <laughs> it's like the dad messed up. Because well, Leah messed up. She went along with it. That's right. Leah messed up. So, you know, I can't fault Rachel. I can. Because it doesn't matter when other people sin. Does that give me an excuse not to do what is right? And it is clearly, I don't care how many wives a guy has, it is clearly his biblical mandate to love his wife. Or wives. Okay? If you've got 700 of them, that's your fault. Okay? It was Solomon's fault he had 700 wives, but it was his obligation 
to love them. Now, don't ask me how you do that, okay? We won't go there, <laughs> okay? We just have a guy with two wives here, okay? So what about the servants and point yeah. they could think it was okay to uh, He obviously wasn't thinking biblically. <laughs> See, that's my point. That's my point. When people don't walk righteously, everything goes screwy. Okay? And when everything's all messed up, then it's easy to say, well, everything's all messed up so I can mess up. And what I'm suggesting to you is that's not right. And that's when it gets so hard to walk righteously. When everybody else around us is doing things wrong and it's hurting us, it's so easy for us to say, well, everybody else around me is doing wrong, so I don't have to do right. And what I'm suggesting to you is, as wrong as the circumstances were, and they are wrong on many levels here in this chapter. Are you suggesting that it was wrong at this point for a man like Jacob to have two wives? <sighs> <laughs> you, know, you know, Ron, in, in Roundtable about a month ago, I just did a, a presentation on divorce and marriage and stuff. And I had all this all just, you know, it all, you know, in theory, it all works out really smooth and cool, you know. And then we read the Bible and we find out it doesn't all work out that way, you know. Clearly, God's intention for marriage was monogamy. And that's clear from Genesis chapter 2. Okay. That God's intention for marriage is monogamy. He doesn't actually specifically verbally prohibit bigamy or polygamy until much later. Okay. But I think it's pretty clear from the righteous the early righteous guys like Abraham who remained monogamous with Sarah for many years, probably their entire life together. He did end up mentioning marrying Keturah, okay. Uh, and clearly what he did, scripture's clear, clearly what he did uh, with uh, Hagar was wrong, okay. So it's pretty clear and, and Isaac remains faithful to his wife. Even though she's barren for 20 years, he remains faithful to his wife monogamously. Okay. So it's very clear that monogamy is God's pattern. Okay. We don't have a record of him actually stipulating, you know, okay, it's, it's wrong for you to be married to more than one wife until much, much later. Okay. Till, actually, till the New Testament. So I don't know how to answer your question. Okay. I don't know how to answer your question. Uh, and, and there again, we go, okay, he was tricked. You know, what does he do? You know, I, I don't know how to answer those questions. And, and we, face, we face in our lives, oftentimes, we're not going to get all the way through this, but we'll get close. Um, we face, in all of our lives, we face very complex ethical dilemmas, don't we? We face very complex ethical dilemmas. And, and I wouldn't want to presuppose to tell everybody exactly how they should perform in each dilemma they face, okay? Uh, some, sometimes, some cases, maybe I could say this would be the right thing to do, but others are very complex and very difficult ethical dilemmas. But what I am trying to suggest is that we cannot... Well, I think one thing is clear from Scripture. We cannot use the faults and the errors and the sins and the wrongs of others to justify us doing wrong. So I don't know what Jacob knew at that point when he woke up that morning and it was Leah in bed instead of Rachel. You know, I don't know what he knew was right or wrong to do. And I don't know if he knew it was right or wrong to marry Rachel. And maybe it was okay under that dispensation. Maybe it was okay for him. But as we move forward in the story, it's clearly not okay for him to love one and not love the other. It's not okay for him to have concubines. Okay? That's clearly not okay. So, all this other stuff that's going on is clearly not okay. And what I'm suggesting is that when Leah comes, Leah's son comes in with the mandrakes and Rachel wants them, and Leah goes, is it a small thing to you that you have taken my husband? I think that's a signal to us there that Rachel has, in addition to everything else that's gone on, Rachel has failed here because she has failed to confront her husband and say, Jacob, you're not treating my sister right. You're just not treating her right. And I love you, and I want your love, but she wants it too. And you need to figure out a way to do that. 
And I agree. Rachel's been hurt. Leah's been hurt. Jacob's been hurt. Everybody's been hurt. But folks, at some point, we're all hurt. And at some point in our lives, we have to get a point to say, I'm going to stop hurting others. I'm going to stop hurting others. Even though I've been hurt and everybody else has been hurt and everybody else is hurting everybody else, where will it stop if it won't stop here? Well, we're way past time. Next week, we'll pick up this and we'll go on into next week's lesson.